Hey, welcome to If You Build It Youth Sports. I want to welcome back returning listeners. And if you're listening for the first time, welcome. Uh, my name is Gary Dworkwitz. I've had the privilege of being involved in high school youth sports for the past 30 years. Uh, my mission is to promote and cultivate best practice for a positive and healthy experience for our young athletes. And uh, I want to welcome this week's guest is uh, Mr. Darren Fenster. And uh, Darren, welcome. Darren, uh, as a, a ball player and a baseball resume, a pretty impressive and uh, started at Rutgers University. He went to high school in New Jersey, right? New Jersey yep. bred. So all good. And currently uh, working for the Boston Red Sox for the past 10 years, is it? Yep. And then was just recently named to USA Baseball's uh, Olympic staff under uh, manager uh, Mike Socha's a third base coach. So congratulations on that. And um, but also uh, has a, a Twitter handle, a coach for kids and pretty passionate about uh youth sports and development. So, you know, welcome, Darren. I appreciate it, Gary. Good to be here. Yeah. So you're, you're actually my fourth guest. So I guess for a baseball guy, you don't mind batting cleanup, right? Like you got resume. Well, I, was, I was a singles hitter. So cleanup was never my spot, but if that's where you got me slotted in the lineup. Yeah. Listen, listen, it's new age baseball. So, but, uh, I mean, just, uh, to give our, our, our listeners some background here. So, um, all-time hits leader at Rutgers, uh, all-time doubles leader uh, at bats, single-season hit record, two-time All-America shortstop, four-year starter, uh, Rutgers Hall of Fame in 2007. So I guess starting starting there, uh, you know, your uh, work ethic, where did you get your work ethic from? That's probably from my mom and my dad. Um, you know, they, between my brothers and I, they kind of instilled um, – you know, uh, just doing things the right way. And it's kind of started with schoolwork. And, um, you know, I don't think, uh, I don't think any of us were straight A students, but um, they, our parents, you know, basically made, made sure that we ha had our priorities right. And we were doing what we needed to do in school. And, um, you know, I think that foundation, um, you know, along with the opportunities that they gave us to play sports as kids and let us kind of find our own way and see, you know, what we enjoyed and what we were into. And, you know, um, I've, I've two brothers and, um, we all have very, very different interests, but, um, the way that our parents raised us kind of allowed us to kind of find our own wings, I guess you would say. And uh, when you, when you find something that you really enjoy, I think that becomes a lot easier to, to work at because you enjoy it, you know, rather than if my, you know, if my older brother got pushed into sports when he wasn't really into them, um, you know, it would kind of be, you know, he'd be pulling teeth to get him to, to do anything with it. Whereas for me, you know, I would be the one who would be constantly looking to looking to play and looking to do something. And, you know, I definitely enjoyed sports a lot more than I enjoyed school, but, you know, having that foundation that our parents instilled in us in a very early age, I think translated very easily. Did, uh, did your parents encourage you to play multiple sports? Um, I don't know if they necessarily encouraged us, but um, they gave us opportunities to, uh, you know, I played, um, baseball, basketball and soccer through middle school. And then, you know, when you're five foot three and five foot four basketball careers kind of fall by the wayside. So I kind of gave that up when I got into high school, but played, um, continued to play soccer and played varsity soccer for, for a couple of years and gave that up my senior year 
of uh, of high school. So yeah, all the, all the way up until about, I was about 17 years old, I was I was a multiple sport guy. So like now, I mean, obviously you you're making a living uh, in baseball, and you look back to the other sports that you played. I guess to what extent and what impact do you feel playing other sports assisted you or, or not? Um, with the perspective now, I think directly on the field, playing different sports helped me become a, a better athlete, you know, where that translated into all of them. Like the things that you need to do on a basketball court are different types of athletic movements and what you're expected to do on baseball um, and soccer, the same thing with, obviously a game that's played with your feet and so much in baseball that um, is kind of driven from the ground up with footwork. Um, they, they absolutely, um, you know, helped one, one to the next um, specifically with just becoming a better athlete. Uh, and then just the, uh, the variety of, uh, of different coaches that you play for, um, I think gives you different perspectives with, you know, the, I think the nature of baseball is not, you know, a high intensity, um, quote unquote, yelling type sport like football or basketball may be, but I played for some of those guys. And so being able to handle different types of personalities from, uh, from different coaches just allowed me, I think, to become a little bit more coachable as, as I grew up and encountered, you know, those different personalities, uh, whether it be in, you know, in soccer or, or coaching or, uh, or playing in college or, or even the various guys I played for professionally. I know on the hockey side, like uh, typically guys as they grow who are pretty good in the corners with their feet, you find a lot of the, a lot of the European uh, bred players played a lot of soccer growing up and they're quite comfortable in those situations, uh, small areas and those things that things. So you see how it translates uh, to, you know, to, to other sports. Um, but at any rate, uh, yeah, so – you also you got drafted in the twelfth round, right, by the Kansas City Royals, and you had a career there before up to uh, advanced to Double A before injuries kind of got a hold of you. Um, so I want to just talk to you quickly about that, um, and really from an injury standpoint, what are you seeing now with players that are seemingly making guys get injured uh, more often? And the reason I'm asking that is um, I'm just trying to see is there a correlation to overuse with younger players and is it is it manifesting itself a little bit later in life or like what do you see with that in the injury side um you know i'm sure there's a number of factors that kind of that that play into injuries you know for you know in my example i i just jumped for a ball and i landed awkwardly which is kind of a freak injury i don't think that had anything to do with just playing you know playing too much but um you know, there, there is something to be said about giving your body a break and, you know, allowing your arm to rest and getting away from the game, both physically and mentally, um, where if, if you're playing for 12 months at, you know, 10 years old, I think by the time you're you're 14 years old, you, you may be sick of the game. And by the time you're 17, you don't want to play it anymore. So, um, you know, that's kind of the mental side of things to just get away and do something else. And when you come back, I think that kind of re reignites the the love that a lot of people have. Um, and that was absolutely the case for me, and, you know, just professionally right now, um, you know, the, the calendar in professional baseball is really one extreme to the other, where it's just about every day from the middle of February until the middle of September or October, depending on the level that you're at. And by the, by the end of it, you know, guys, coaches included are, 
physically spent and mentally spent. And so those, those first couple months of the off season in the fall, we really want no part of, of baseball. And, um, you know, we want to get away from it. We just want to, you know, uh, relax and recharge. But then I think once the holidays come in and then Thanksgiving comes and, you know, Christmas comes and then the new year, I think everybody's kind of chomping at the bit to, to get the new season started again. And that's a really good example of what getting away from the game does for you when, you know, we're, we kind of want to step away because of, you know, the grind of, of the season. Um, but with regard to just, you know, overuse and, and, um, you know, the injuries that come from it, you know, uh, different, different sports, like I just mentioned, kind of force different types of movements and like throwing a baseball is not a natural thing. Like raising your arm above your head is not a natural thing. So, you know, you do that long enough from an earlier age, like you only have so many, so many bones in the chamber. And, um, I think that absolutely has plays a, plays a part in, you know, the, the injuries that you see and the age that you see those injuries. But I also think that um, a lot of players uh, on the uh, strength and conditioning side are um, getting into it at much earlier ages. Their bodies are kind of uh, being built stronger than they've ever been. And there is that red line where um, the body can only take so much, no matter how strong it is. And I think you're seeing that, especially at the major league level with um, with a lot of pitchers who are really pushing the envelope, you know, you see guys who there are more guys throwing 100 miles an hour today than there's ever been. Um, but I think the the shelf life of guys who are able to do that, I think, is is relatively small. Um, so I think there are a lot of different factors that are going into it, um, you know, and what the, that right balance of all that is from, you know, from youth sports to uh, to the major leagues is I think. You know, I think it's it's very much still to be determined on what's what's appropriate and what's too much. Yeah, I'm thinking of like injuries, the guys uh, like with your your lats and um, the strains that you're getting in your back. Like guys are talking about, well, I took X amount of swings, and over time they feel like maybe it's it's too much. Um, and I see correlations in other sports. Like the example I give in hockey, a lot of times is is like the goaltenders. Because the goaltenders now are trained in a way where they're they're almost like ballet dancers. They have these movements where they have to do these specific movements, and they're all sharp movements. So you get these guys who are twenty something year old guys, and they're having hip surgeries. Um, and I think it's it's getting revisited, but I think obviously it's starting now on lower levels where kids feel like they have to kind of keep up with their competition at their age groups. And you know, I don't know, I don't know what the solution is, but I can see these things starting to pop up in other sports. It's just, it's just different, uh, you know, based on what sport you're playing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I would venture to say that, you know, with the privatization of, you know, most sports, I think, um, you know, there are now opportunities to, to, to play year round. And I'm sure if, if I were growing up today, I probably would have quit basketball and soccer a lot earlier because there were opportunities to, um, to do stuff at facilities and with organizations 12 months of the year. Um, but, you know, grew up at a different time and there were, you know, there were far more limited opportunities. Like I didn't even leave my own County here in New Jersey until I think the summer, um, the summer before my junior or senior year of high school, which is crazy to think in, in this day and age where you got, you know, 10 year old kids who are traveling all over the country to play in, all kinds of travel tournaments over the course of the spring, summer, and fall. So, um, you know, not, not to say that, Hey, you know, we need to get back to what it was 
20, 30 years ago because that's never going to happen. But again, I think just in general, finding balance between what, you know, kids are doing, what, you know, the guys that, that we're coaching at the professional level are doing, I think that's really, really important. So I guess the next thing I wanted to hop into with you was, um, besides, obviously your mom and dad were positive influences. Is there, is there a coach in your youth that made a difference for you that made an impact that you remember? And if so, why? I mean, without, without a doubt, I've always said that, you know, my coach at Rutgers, Fred Hill, um, you know, was like a second father to me. And um, he is the reason why I'm a coach today and, you know, saw something in me at the end of my playing career that I wasn't even ready to look for myself where he said, you know, I thought, you know, I think you, you, you would make a good coach. And if you're interested, I'll create a spot for you. You know, and here we are um, some 15 years later, I guess, uh, from from when my playing career ended. And, you know, I've written a, a little bit of a different story as a coach. So the influence that he had on me um, that over the course of a 20 year relationship from when, you know, I first uh, first arrived on on campus in 1996 and, you know, just growing close to him as a player and then staying in touch with him after I left and was having my own professional career and then spending six years with him as a, as a coach and then leaving for the Red Sox and obviously staying in touch with him there. Um, just the, the, the life's lessons that he taught me and countless others, I think, um, stay with me still to this day. And I think about him all the time. And, um, you know, you talk about influential people in your life, like, you know, mom and dad are obviously number one and he's, he's without question number, number two. So if we're speaking to young coaches out there, what's one or two qualities that coach Hill has that you would love to see? in youth coaches? Um, boy, that's, I mean, there's so many, and that's, that's a really good question, but I think he, I mean, it started with like, he, he genuinely cared about people, you know, and, and he didn't care if you were um, a first round draft pick or a walk on or a custodian or whoever it was like, he treated people well. And um, I think, you know, that is the foundation of being able to build a relationship with people. And, you know, uh, when you get into, when you get into coaching, I think you really understand how important just that relationship is completely independent of like what, you know, as a coach. Um, so that, that was something that, you know, I've the perspective over the years, I've learned that about him, but I remember something very, very distinct when I first joined, uh, joined the coaching staff, um, in the spring of 2006, at the end of all of our practices as a staff, we would kind of get together in the dugout and kind of debrief on what went well, who looked good, what, you know, we needed to do for the next day. And as this was going on, you know, coach Hill would occasionally get, go on his hands and knees and like be grabbing stuff underneath the, the dugout bench. And, you know, after about the third day of doing this, I, I kept wondering, I'm like, what the hell is this guy always doing? Like on his hands and knees. And I, at first I thought like maybe he dropped a pen or, you know, he was picking up baseballs that had kind of rolled under there. And then I realized that he was picking up trash, um, trash that very few people could even see. And so just that image in my head kind of, at the very start of my coaching career made me realize that there wasn't a single thing that I was too good to do. If, you know, this guy who's a legend, he's a hall of famer and um, on a number of different levels. If this guy is picking up 
trash in a dugout that's left over by teenagers, then like, you know, there's nothing that, that I should say, Hey, no, I'm not going to do that because of X, Y, and Z. And so I think that kind of a humble nature, you know, is, is part of the foundation of, um, you know, what I've been able to do as a coach where, um, people ask you to do something for the team that you're working for, the staff that you're with, the organization that you're with, you know, I think you, you know, just without, without question, you just do it because that's what coach Hill did. Yeah. It's interesting that you say that because I found, I'm going to say later in life here, I I'm, I'm a big proponent of respectful environment wherever I'm at. Uh, if I'm, in the classroom, if I'm on the ice rink or the football field, to me, having that respectful environment and the opportunity to have an audience where you can teach in a respectful environment and demand a respectful environment, I think that includes everything in it. Guys like Coach Hill, um, you know, there's such treasures because they value the things that are most important. Um, and it's not always the fancy things, like you say, like the little things that when people aren't watching. Um, but you had, you had mentioned something too about how his genuine care. And I had read a quote that uh, has been around for a while in the coaching circles, but that, that you know, your players won't respond to you um, or your players won't care until they actually know that you do in terms of what you're offering them and your opportunity to coach and teach them. That you, The first thing you have to do is establish that relationship um, with them in, in order to be able to coach them. Do you, you find that to be true in your, in your travels right now? Uh, yes and no. Like that's a, a very, a very cliche saying. Um, and I guess, you know, an example that I'll just give is just, you know, you and I are relative strangers, but you care about what I have to say for whatever reason. Right. But I think, you know, if you put this out and there were people who I had relationships with, I think, you know, their ears would open up a little bit more. So I think um, by all means, like having a close relationship, some gives like uh, a little bit of a, a, your voice carries a little bit more weight um, and there's a huge benefit to that. But I also do think that like, you know, there are coaches in every single sport that are having players come in that they don't know that they don't have any relationships with and the players listen to them. So I under I totally get, that idea of trying to push coaches to actually care about players, because I'm sure there are a lot that are out there that don't. Uh, I think it just elevates the level of um, being open to being coached when there is that foundation of a, of a relationship that, um, you know, a coach actually has taken the time to care about you beyond just what you may or may not yeah. be able to do on the field. Yeah. And basically do you, do you trust a person or not? Like, do you trust that what they're telling you is actually going to be good for you? I'm right. like, am I willing to try something that's not in my routine, right? My regular everyday stuff. Cause coach is saying this to me, like, does coach care about me or is he just trying to get me to, you know, something to benefit from him? Yeah. Um, I think when, when, when the coach cares more, the player will care more. So I think there's a, there's a foundation of like, you know, if, if they don't, if you said that they didn't care, what is it? I don't care how much, you know, until I know how much you care. Well, think about it, like players care from day one when they're on a team um, and I think just over time as that relationship builds and you know they understand that a coach hopefully has their best intentions then I think that that level of care just increases yeah because now I guess 
in, in baseball, and you would know this obviously a lot better, but it seems like you've got the statistical side, which now anal analytics is the big but big buzzword. Guys will argue, right, that, listen, we've been doing stats for a long time and, and these types of things, but now it's kind of like if you have that approach, but then you also have old school approaches where it's what people are seeing with their eyes and, and that kind of thing. Um, like you see changes in, in, uh, people being appointed jobs, losing jobs because they're philosophically, they're not matching up with, uh, I guess the team's philosophy, but on the youth side, when you're coaching youth kids, what, what's the simplest, easiest, or in your opinion, the best approach in starting kids off in terms of getting them on the right track? The, the younger, the kid, the more the focus needs to be on fun playing whatever sport that is. Um, and so, you know, if, if it's a kid who, you know, is just learning how to play baseball, six, seven, eight years old, I think the very worst thing that a coach could do is have one kid hit, have 10 kids out in the field and just, you know, throw batting practice because you're going to have 10, 11 kids who are going home saying that that was the most boring thing on earth because yeah. they're not, getting any action. So I think when, when coaches have some creativity to make that environment, a fun environment, a fun environment where they're learning the game, then they're going home saying, man, I can't wait to do that again tomorrow. And that doesn't mean as you get older, you lose that focus on, um, you know, creating a good environment because even as um, you know, as a professional working with, you know, hopefully a lot of future major leaguers, there's an element in how we organize our days that it's not screwing around type fun, but you know, if we're doing the same thing every day for six months straight by the end of the first month, they're going to be sick of it if they even last that long. So we're trying to also create environments that they enjoy being in um, that are different every day that keep things fresh, that keep guys getting better, that are competitive, all these things that as guys get older, you know, their idea of fun changes, but it's still fun in their own right where they're working hard, but they're enjoying doing it. And I think um, there absolutely needs to be an emphasis on, um, you know, that fun aspect more, making sure that the, the kids are leaving, having a good time. That's more of a priority than anything else as the younger that they go. Um, and, and just uh, a saying that, that or, or a belief, I guess, uh, a friend of mine is, is the head coach at, at Princeton. His name's Scott Bradley, played in the big leagues for a long time. Um, Outfielder, right? Catcher. Catcher. Yeah. Okay. And, and um, he he has a simple saying that the, the mark of a successful youth coach um, is not found in wins and losses, and it's not even found in how much better players get. It's simply in how many players – come back to sign up again the next year because if you know you had 12 kids on a team and it's the 12 come back for the following year well that means hopefully that they enjoyed the experience to want to do it again um and there's i think there's a lot of truth to that yeah in the on the hockey side so the retention um the the numbers indicate that if you can get an eight-year-old to come back for their uh nine-year-old season that their that their percentages for sticking with that sport through high school go up dramatically, so you can argue in your youth programs in hockey anyway that 
the most important jobs belong to the guys coaching the AU level because there's a dramatic drop after that year. And all the things that you just mentioned, um, having fun, creating an environment where you might have to just change your how you present drills or what you're trying to accomplish uh, are all spot on. Uh, and I wanted to ask you, so in hockey, they have USA Hockey, and they have a pretty good coaching education for youth coaches. Their information uh, through apps and, and availability of lesson plans and things like that are seemingly good starts for youth coaches. Where is baseball to that regard with their development and, and support for youth coaches? I know USA Baseball has a ton of resources that are geared towards youth coaches from everything to reading materials, to coaching manuals, to, to drill videos and probably everything in between. Um, and I'm sure different organizations, little league baseball, you know, Cal Ripken baseball, all those things offer, you know, something, something similar. Uh, I think where the disconnect is, is in the privatization of, you know, sports baseball in particular, where, um, organizations don't necessarily f have to fall under any of these umbrellas. They're a private business and can do what they want. And so if they have people who are running the organization who, you know, have no sense of how to coach or have no set, no real baseball background. And, you know, it's a business that is trying to make money, then like, you know, they can kind of go rogue and they don't necessarily have to follow a curriculum. And, um, you know, I, I would like to, believe that those types of organizations are few and far between, but I'm not so naive to think that those types of organizations are, are few and far between. So, you know, I figure if, if someone's creating a baseball facility or a sports specific facility or organization that the people that are kind of at the head of that have some kind of a significant background in the sport and are filling their organizations with like-minded people who have a passion for the, for the game who have some sense of how to teach it. This is a little bit off course here, but I'm just curious your opinion on this. So in high school, if you were like me, you probably did a lot of group workouts with your friends, guys who were in sport. And now like we've kind of evolved a little bit more into this individual type of instruction. You go for whatever, pitching lessons, hitting lessons, pick your sport, right? Do you, do you think that that's changed the mindset of our young athletes at all in terms of thinking more as a team or more individual? Like, have you seen that in your experience? I, I think without a doubt. Um, uh, I think the individual individualization in many respects is really, really good because it gets coaches out of cookie cutting every single player in the same mold, um, which benefits some and probably hurts others. Um, so in that respect, I think that's been a huge positive, uh, specifically for baseball, uh, and I would imagine other sports as well, where you're kind of catering a developmental plan based on each individual athlete and based on, you know, uh, how they move, what their strengths are, what their weaknesses are, all that sorts of, sorts of things. Um, I think where the, um, where the blind spot is, is then because we've become so individually oriented, that's come at a sacrifice to understanding where an individual skill set falls in line with what's needed within a specific game for a specific team. And that may be um, big picture in terms of like just the role of a player on a team. And it may be as specific as 
a situation within a game where we don't need a home run and we we need contact. We need you to put the ball in play to drive a runner in from third. Yeah. And so, you know, I don't think many, uh, if we're talking about hitting, for example, uh, I don't know how many hitting instructors on the private side are individualizing swings to do anything other than hit the ball as hard and as far as they possibly can. And that comes with a lot of swing and miss and it's, it's an approach thing. It's a physical thing. And so, um, you know, if a guy doesn't necessarily teach for the best result every single time, then, you know, they may feel like they're, they're doing, uh, they're doing the players short. Uh, but the reality of how a game works is that there are times where, yeah, you know, we want you to do damage with the bat, but there are also times where, um, you know, I've, I've heard the expression in baseball where it's like a golfer going into, uh, going into his bag for different types of shots. You know, a golfer's got how many clubs in his bag and, you know, when you need distance, you go for the driver when you need, uh, you know, when you're on the fringe, you know, you're going to have a very skilled, um, chip shot. And so I think, I love that analogy on the baseball side because the game is going to dictate what you need to do with the bat. And it's not always going to be that, you know, that single groove swing that guys are spending tons of time working on. Yeah. I, I that is a, uh, that's a bullseye. Like it's a conversation we have frequently in hockey too, because a lot of times guys are taking the same type of shot, regardless of, is there someone in front of the net? Is there one person in front? Is there two person in front? Are you on an angle or, and trying to teach young people that um, there's a, a, a right approach and right shot for situations and then trying to teach those different situations. So this part here, I'm pretty excited about, and this is going back to my love for Little League Baseball. Um, so right now with Little League, the numbers are, the numbers are going down. Uh, seemingly organizations are having trouble getting new kids involved. Um, and, uh, what, what are your thoughts on that? What do you, what are you seeing that's going on with youth baseball? Why do we have, why, why do we have a dearth now of new players coming into the sport in your opinion? So uh, when you, when you say little league, I think you're talking about the little league that you and I grew up in the community leagues, yep. um, the, the, the grassroots level of the game where kids are kind of learning, you know, how to play the game from six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years old and up. Um, I think if I'm not mistaken, participation in baseball has actually been at its highest levels in years. Um, and that I think is a direct byproduct of, of all these private organizations that are stealing. Um, stealing might not be the right, the right word, but directing <laughs> the, the, the opportunity to um, get, you know, more specialized instruction in theory from uh, an organization that is baseball driven by baseball people. I think parents kind of are, are, are leaning that way versus playing in, um, you know, a local community league where a coach is very likely just somebody's, somebody's dad who might not know much at all about the game. Um, so I think that is the biggest culprit for, you know, why the, those grassroots league are leagues are, are, are struggling to, to fill their teams. Um, and, and probably, you know, the other side of it is the, you know, that, that sports specialization starting at a, at a much earlier age uh, than before where, 
you know, I, I know, you know, I'm 42 years old and growing up, everybody played three sports. And now you're lucky if anybody plays two. And, you know, I think um, that that is that is 100 um, percent with uh, the, the, the privatization of sports behind when, that. When I when I think of travel baseball, though, what I, like comes into my mind is, OK, you need some type of functionality in your in your life where you have a mom, dad. Uh, people who can drive you to these different places. If you go to, to some of these tournaments now and you see a typical guy walking around, they've got their they've got their bag on, they've got two or three bats in there, a couple hundred dollars a pop in the bat. I don't know about you, like me growing up, I had one glove. I didn't have I didn't have an infielder's glove, an outfielder's glove, a catcher's glove, first baseman's glove. I had, I had one glove and wherever wherever your coach put you in, you played. So I'm just wondering now, is it becoming a is it becoming a situation where you have to have some resources in order to participate in these things, or you have to have a family kind of adopt you and say, okay, you know, Darren, I, I'll pick you up. I got you. And you, and you wind up adopting a kid for a baseball season where you're, you're basically taking care of them. I don't think there's any, any question that baseball has become a lot more expensive now than it was 15, 20 years ago. Um, you know, because these, these private teams, these private organizations are not free, you know, little league is, comes at a, at a nominal cost. I don't even know what it was. I can't imagine it's even like 50 bucks or a hundred bucks just to play. It buys you a, a t-shirt as a uniform and a hat. Um, but the combination of just having to pay money, significant money to be a part of an organization, you know, the costs that come with that to play in games, to buy uniforms and, and everything else, it absolutely eliminates some kids who don't have those types of resources. But I know that Major League Baseball and USA Baseball are, are very, very active in making conscious efforts to provide opportunities for players who don't have that type of money to be able to still play the game. You know, there's a program called RBI, Reviving Baseball in the Inner Cities, which um, any I think any major metropolitan area offers it. Um, you know, I think there's one in Jersey City. I'm sure there's one in New York, uh, you know, Philadelphia. I'm sure there are those opportunities, um, you know, but again, you know, I think this all kind of circles around the same conversation of just um, there being more opportunities for for kids to play, which take away from, you know, a lot of these other these other different uh, different uh, organizations and teams that have been available in the past, like. I'm sure if there's if there's a talented player who is in the RBI program, then one of these private teams would have no problem grabbing him up and you know allowing him to play for free or having you know a family you know adopt him like he like you said, uh, because then that potentially gives that organization more credibility because they have a better a better player, uh, and you know I think that's very much how how you know that side of the game operates and has been operating for a long time. So with the numbers as, as like you're saying that are maybe even better now, does, is this a problem for baseball or, or it's just a different way of life now? Um, it all depends on how you look at it. I mean, if, if overall participation is up, that's a really good thing. Um, but you know, you hate to see these, these grassroots community organizations kind of fall by the wayside because nobody's playing anymore. Um, so, uh, you know, how does that affect the sport long-term? I think, 
Uh, I think it's hard to say because, you know, how many of those kids who are leaving this, their seven-year-old little league team for these private organizations, how many, how many of those kids are still playing at 10, 11, 12 years old? Uh, I think that's a good thing to look into. Um, you know, and, and just like, like I had mentioned previously on the physical side, I think, you know, I think balance is, is really important. And if uh, I know some, some travel organizations in an effort to keep the community programs alive, force, um, force their kids to play in the community league in order to be eligible to play mm -hmm. on, on the travel team, which I think is a really good thing. And they, they try to, I think they, they organize their schedule where, you know, you know, that community league may be just two months in April and May and the, um, you know, the travel organizations have all spring and fall to, to kind of expand on a kid's baseball. Yeah. Be, I mean, right now, if you just take a vanilla example and say, okay, a little league, a, a, a child's 12 year old season. I know locally it used to be like, say 25 games. This is going back a few years ago and then it went to 20 and then it went to 15. They, in the days where it was 20 and 25, they would actually have like an all-star break. So the kids would go and, and, and uh, participate in all-stars and then they would continue their season like through July and then families would do your vacations in August. So now everything's getting pushed forward. Um, and it, basically I, I believe the vehicle is, you know, uh, the Little League World Series and kind of getting that timeline in order. So now when you play, say you play 15 games and three of the 15 are getting ended for uh, a mercy rule. Another three, you're not finishing because of darkness. So now you're down to like eight or nine and your weather here in the Northeast isn't always cooperative. It, like it just, it's, it's like, I feel like the kids need to play more, but yet there, there's these obstacles coming up where, where the kids are playing less for that, for that group of kids. Yeah. Um, there's all, I mean, there's all, I'm sure every, you know, every place has some kind of challenges. You know, if you go to Florida, it gets too hot too quick and then kids don't want to be outside. Um, but um, I think one thing that might get lost is, and, and we dealt with this when I coached at Rutgers, I saw it kind of just really starting to rear its ugly head is that, you know, kids don't practice as, t as a team. And, you know, they may have all that individual work, um, showcasing has taken off tournaments have taken off. So there, there, there are opportunities to play games, but I think the idea of just practicing to learn the game, to get better at the skills in a team environment, I think that has probably been eliminated more than, more than a lot, more than anything else. Um, and that, um, you know, as, uh, we're starting to finally get, uh, players, in, on the professional level whose entire upbringing was in this new age of baseball over the last 10 or 15 years. And they're as talented as any generation coming into pro ball has ever been. They're, they're, they're more physically developed. They're throwing harder than they've ever been. They have a much better feel for their swings and like why they swing the way that they swing than they're, than they're, than they ever have. But I also think this generation uh, lacks like the, the basic, baseball knowledge and i think you learn you know playing in those backyard games that you learn yeah. uh, from coaches who are teaching you the the x's and o's in in practice sessions and you know when a kid comes up in that showcase environment is 100 percent just about the kid um, so i think it's it's hard to put the blame on on a kid for not knowing how 
his skills fit into the team environment where the environment that they came up in never really emphasized that. Uh, and I know it's a very big umbrella statement, but mm. I think that's that's kind of the state of the game where those organizations and those coaches who are teaching the game in that, you know, big picture team environment, I think, you know, that's, that's what's been sacrificed over, uh, over the recent years. That concludes part one with coach Darren Fenster from USA baseball. Tune in for part two when coach Fenster talks about all things, including the shift in baseball. Is it good for the sport or not? Coach Fenster's takes on youth development and little information about uh, a player everybody knows about, Mookie Betts. So please tune in. Look forward to seeing everybody and hearing from everybody in part two. Enjoy your rest of your week. <laughs>